You're listening to a podcast edition of Closer to Truth. For more information about this series, visit our website, closertotruth.com. Hi, I'm Robert Lawrence Kuhn, host of Closer to Truth. For more deep discussions of cosmology, consciousness, the multiverse, free will, scientific breakthroughs, raw existence, and much more, I invite you to become a member by signing up at CloserToTruth.com. Registration is totally free, and you'll get benefits like early access to new episodes, tailored video recommendations, discounts on events and programs, and inside updates via our email newsletters. Again, sign up for free membership at CloserToTruth.com and click on Join. We appreciate your support of Closer to Truth, and we're excited for you to see what we've got coming up this year. Freeman J. Dyson, physicist and futurist, visionary extraordinaire, died on February 28, 2020, at the age of 96. I had interviewed Dyson in 2007 when he was 83. We met at the Institute for Advanced Study in Princeton, where he had worked since 1952. It was the legendary J. Robert Oppenheimer, the Institute director, who gave Dyson a lifetime appointment. For proving me wrong, Oppenheimer said. I arrived on a September day in 1948. I walked into the main building, and the first thing I saw was a bunch of kids racing around the room playing cowboys and Indians. And I thought immediately, good, this is the place I belong. Freeman Dyson was one of the most innovative thinkers of our age, discovering new mathematics, challenging fundamental physics, colonizing space, searching for signatures of alien civilizations, imagining the far future of intelligence in a burned-out, heat-dead universe. We can speak many things about this astonishingly free and fertile mind. We prefer that Dyson speak for himself. Closer to Truth is privileged to present this two-part tribute to Freeman Dyson, visionary extraordinaire. Part one, fundamental physics to the far future of intelligence. I'm Robert Lawrence Kuhn, speaking with Freeman Dyson along my journey to get closer to truth. Oh, that's very interesting. That's going to have quite, a, quite an impact. I don't know. Freeman Dyson danced to his own tune. To say he was iconoclastic is a compliment and an understatement. In the words of his friend Oliver Sacks, the noted neurologist and author, Dyson, in his science and in his creativity, was subversive. Tell me about physics and why it's so fundamental. I hate the word fundamental. <laughs> That's one thing I've not been chasing after in, in my career as a scientist. I, I love details. 
I like to look at a real thing and try to understand it. I don't give a damn whether it's fundamental <laughs> or not. Well, why do so many fundamental physicists, as they're called, uh, take such uh, uh, pride in their fundamentalism? Well, there are different kinds of people. Fortunately, we need different kinds of people. I'm, I'm, I'm a frog and they're a bird. <laughs> that, that, that's roughly the classification that I use. I mean, birds are the people who fly high and look out over the landscape. And, and they are, of course, very proud of being fundamental. But, but uh, the frogs, meanwhile, live in the mud and, and, and actually study the flowers <laughs> and find out what's really going on. What are some of the beautiful flowers that you've uh, seen in your career? Basically, I'm a mathematician, so mm -hmm. my tools are essentially calculations. I discovered a, a beautiful theorem concerning sequences of, of, of integers, which only about three people in the world ever understood or were interested in. So another thing I did was a, a subject called random matrices, which I did 45 years ago. Eugene Wigner, who was a great physicist who lived here in Princeton, thought it was a way of looking at nuclei, so that a, a nucleus was a black box, essentially a, a ball full of particles strongly interacting. You didn't understand the details of what was going on. So you represent it by a completely random system. Mm. It turned out to be a very fruitful line of inquiry, and so I chased after that, and I became one of the main developers of the field. Mm. Then it went mm. out of fashion, and nothing much was heard of it for for, the, for about 25 years. And now it's back. Now I've, there, are, there are big conferences organized now to which I'm invited because I'm a sort of historical monument. <laughs> you have characterized yourself as a, and your generation of physicists, as being conservatives. That's true, yes. The, the, the generation before, the people who had brought about this wonderful revolution of quantum mechanics in the 1920s, they uh, were sort of intoxicated with their success. And, yeah. and these people, including Einstein and Dirac and, and Heisenberg and Schrodinger, they, all of them then afterwards thought they had to do something fundamental. And so they chased after will-o'-the-wisps and, and each of them had a private theory of everything which turned, <laughs> out, turned out to be nonsense. So my generation in reaction against that said simply, let's use the tools we have and find out how far they can go. And, and so going back to the existing tools, but using them creatively, we did pretty well. And, and though we didn't pretend to be fundamental, we actually did a lot better than the old generation. In 1949, when he was 25 years old, Dyson proved the equivalence of two formulations of quantum electrodynamics, QED, how light and matter interact via exchange of photons. The competing formulations came from giants in the field, Richard Feynman on the one side and Julian Schwinger and Sinetiro Tomonaga on the other, all of whom would be awarded Nobel Prizes for QED. Many say Dyson should have shared that Nobel, but not Dyson. Now, you played a critical role in that movement uh, with Richard Feynman and Schwinger in, in terms of the, the theory of, of quantum electrodynamics. How did that come to be? So Heisenberg and Dirac and, and, and Fermi created this new science of quantum electrodynamics, which was a, a very successful version of atomic physics, including radiation, essentially bringing radiation, that, that's the Maxwell field, into quantum mechanics, which they did very successfully. 
The only problem was it was mathematically a mess. And mm. they, they had the physics right, but the mathematics was lousy and ran into all sorts of inconsistencies. So that was what we inherited. So what the young generation did was to take this physics and without adding any new ideas, just clean it up. And then it became a more or less mathematically respectable subject in which you could do calculations precisely, which, of course, Dirac and Heisenberg could not. <laughs> General relativity and quantum mechanics explain what our world is. One, the whole universe, the other, the microstructure of reality. And everybody tells me that we've got to integrate these two to make sense out of reality. Is, is that really necessary? I don't think so, but of course I'm in the minority there, as usual. <laughs> but the world does have two different aspects. I mean, this is the world of physics, which maybe should not be unified. In some way, I like a universe to be more diverse, more, more subtle, rather than pulling it all together. I'm interested in science not really because I want to solve big problems. I mean, I never really wanted to solve big problems. I just had fun doing science. That's why I had such a wide range, so I could work on silly problems in number theory that only three people were interested in, or I could work on the design of a nuclear reactor, which turned out to be of great interest to the public and was also a commercial success. Freeman, how do you see the laws of physics? Well, I find them miraculous. They're quite different from laws of other kinds of science because they're precise. I mean, it's because, because of this unreasonable effectiveness of mathematics that you have the laws of physics are mostly equations, things like the Dirac equation describing relativistic electrons, Einstein's equations describing gravity. So they're these very simple and beautiful equations, somehow nature knew that and does what the equations say. In, in the rest of science, you have what we call emergent laws, which are sort of laws which arise out of complicated structures where the details don't matter, but the structure as a whole ha has a well-recognizable behavior, like, so for example, the laws of evolution in biology, which uh, you can't write down an equation for evolution, but you know what it means. So you can imagine that the laws of physics might have been totally different. Was, I don't think you can't imagine biology without some kind of evolution, but there's no reason one can tell, apart from the, the just brute fact, why the electrons should understand Dirac's equation. <laughs> let me give you some different opinions about laws and let me see what you think about it. Let's start at one extreme, and that is some social scientists who look at science would say that it's all relative, that all science is culturally determined. I think to some extent what they say is true. In fact, science does arise out of a particular social milieu, and we don't really know why it is, but it certainly does seem to have somehow got attached to Western civilization. There was nothing really like Maxwell's equations in, in Chinese culture or in Indian mm -hmm. culture. It seems to have been in some fashion conditioned by the intellectual milieu in the West, 
which had something to do with Greek philosophy and something to do with theology. Well, but some would go further and say, because of that, we can't say it's any more legitimate than some other expressions in other cultures. Yes, and that, of course, is nonsense, because <laughs> we, every time we do an experiment, we find out that the electron really cares, that the <laughs> electron knows that that's what it has to do. So it's certainly, irrespective of how they originated, there's no doubt they speak truth. <laughs> now, there's another group, generally philosophers, that say, sure, these equations work, but they really don't represent reality. They represent a regularity, a, a statistical uh, certainty, but it is just a human intervention imposing on reality some of our constructs that we're never going to get to the real reality. Well, that, of course, that may be true. I mean, we only just came down from the trees and, and we were mm -hmm. just monkeys who are playing around with things. And it's amazing how well we are doing. But still, I wouldn't be at all surprised if it turns out that everything we're doing is sort of very, very partial. And, and there's a whole world of uh, existence out there of which we're, we haven't an inkling. And so I wouldn't be at all surprised if our th science in a thousand years looks extremely primitive. Things do change, and of course we do make new discoveries. And there's always the chance that we find some aliens in the sky who know a lot more than we do. Okay, let's now look at another group who put some special meaning into these laws. Physicists would say that laws are the reality, whereas philosophers of religion may say that these laws are indicative of the, of the mind of God. And so people then imbue in these laws some deeper significance. Yes, well, of course, I'm not a philosopher, and I generally don't like isms of any sort. <laughs> but, but uh, I mean, if you wanted to say what I am, I would say I'm a dualist in a way, that I think there is a physical world and there is a mental world, and they're very different. And we understand the physical world extremely well. We understand the mental world hardly at all. And of course, all these questions about God and about the nature of consciousness and so on, these belong to the mental world. And I don't think we're close to understanding them. We have a very, very long way to go. There's no reason to imagine that that's all there is. <laughs> and we have certainly a lot of evidence that there are mental things which are outside the, the scope of physics, but we don't have the tools really to grasp them. I mean, the big question is whether the brain, in fact, is the same thing as the mind or whether the mind is something different. I prefer that the laws are independent, that the mental world has its own autonomy. But then, of course, that's my prejudice. <laughs> God may turn out to disagree with me, as he often has in the past. <laughs> Born on December 15th in 1923 in Crowthorn in Berkshire, England, Dyson was the son of Mildred Lucy Atkey and George Dyson. Dyson had one sibling, his older sister Alice, who remembered him as a boy surrounded by encyclopedias and always calculating on sheets of paper. I had amused myself by calculating. That was what I would do when I was put to bed for a nap after lunch.
When Freeman Dyson was four years old, he tried to calculate the number of atoms in the sun. When he was eight, he wrote a story about a trip to the moon. He became a physics professor without a doctorate. Nobody does that. To Freeman Dyson, the more diverse, the more interesting. He had no limits to his imagination. The heat death of the universe, disintegrating all substances and deemed inevitable, was but merely a challenge. I make a distinction between sort of four, the future of the solar system, which is say 1,000 years when humans will bring the solar system to life. So we, we are more or less spread over the solar system. A million years it'll take roughly to spread over a galaxy, so you can imagine life no longer human but spread over the galaxy. A billion years would be roughly how long it will take for life to spread over the universe, I mean, give or take a factor of 10. And, and, mm -hmm. and then, so that the fourth future is after that, after the, the <laughs> present universe has passed away, when the stars have faded, when things are getting colder and colder and less and less is happening, when essentially all that's left is, is a, a, a few black holes, a, a few lumps of iron which used to be planets, and the remnants of stars, and perhaps some very dilute plasma, and that's it. And the question is, can life adapt to that kind of, of an environment? I think it could. What are some of the ways that life could survive? The, the, the best way to look at this, I think, is through science fiction. And one of the best is The Black Cloud, which is a book of Fred Hoyle, who was a famous astronomer mm. and also a good writer of fiction. And The Black Cloud is a story about a form of life which is simply a, a cloud of dust grains which floats around through space. And the dust grains are in communication through electric magnetic fields. So instead of nerves and muscles and brain, it just has uh, patterns of electric and magnetic fields. So the advantage of that, of course, is it can be as cold as it wants. That, that It's not dependent on liquid water for its functioning. So as the temperature gets colder and colder, the cloud has to expand gradually and grow a little bit larger so that the, the fields become weaker, but they still are able to be organized in some fashion which could uh, perform okay. mental functions and c carry information and memory. So that this creature could in, in fact exist as a living creature even un under these very bleak conditions. How long would a thought take? It, the thoughts would have to slow down as, as the temperature falls and as the, the cloud expands physically it becomes bigger and bigger. Mm. So that the, the, each thought would probably be something like the time it takes for electromagnetic signals to travel from one side of the th cloud to the other. Mm. So it might be seconds, it might be hours, it might be years. Mm. Of course, the creature has infinite time, so it doesn't mind being slow. <laughs> <laughs> from the point of view of the creature, I mean, a thousand years are, are just but as yesterday. <laughs> that sounds the, almost biblical. It is biblical. And, and the, <laughs> so the unit of time is set by the creature's own consciousness so it, it can be as slow as it needs to be.
You've looked at some more recent possibilities in terms of different kinds of civilizations and what civilizations might do to harness the power of the, a star or a whole galaxies. Yes, well, this is short-term thinking. This is not about the very <laughs> right, far future. Right, this is right. only just a future of a galaxy or, 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 or something Billions of that of years, scale. Yeah. Anyhow, now those three kinds of civilizations were invented by a friend of mine, a man called Nikolai Kardashev, who's mm. a Russian astronomer the first kind that exploits the energy of a planet, which is roughly the stage we are in, which he called Type 1. And then there was the kind that exploited the energy of a star, like the Sun, which he called Type 2. And then he also had Type 3, which is when the civilization has grown to the scale of a galaxy. So it's another factor of a trillion more, more than a star. So that would take you probably billions of years to get, that, mm -hmm. get to that point. Mm -hmm. So with another factor of a trillion, then the whole galaxy will come alive. Mm. So we have no evidence that <laughs> something like that exists. How, how might we detect a type two civilization that harnessed the power of, of a star? The original idea of looking for radio signals assumes that the aliens want to communicate with us. Mm. And so you, you're imagining that, that they, they see this promising planet <laughs> which might be harboring intelligence, and so they beam, beam their radio signals toward us to, in order to open communication. So that's the scenario. Well, I raised the question, well, suppose the aliens don't want to communicate, can you still detect them? And the answer is yes, mm. because if, if it's a type two civilization with lots of, of, of population and lots of industry, then it has to dispose of waste heat. Just, there's no way you can have a large population without generating heat, as we, we, as we know in our own experience. And the only way to get rid of heat in, 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 in the universe is to radiate it away in the form of radiation, which is actually infrared radiation. And of course, the joke is that the sky is crawling with in, infrared sources. There are millions and millions of these infrared sources out, out there which looked just the way a type two civilization <laughs> might look. And so there's absolutely no reason to believe that they're artificial. If you had an artificial habitat surrounding a star, it would essentially be the same thing. It would be a cloud of orbiting objects bigger than dust grains. But from our distance, it would look more or less the same. This has been called by some people a Dyson sphere or a Dyson swarm built by this type two civilization. Uh, how might that look? It would simply be a dusty cloud of objects heated from inside in which so we would see only the infrared light from the outside surface. Why would a type two civilization build that and what might it look like from their perspective? Well, the type two civilization, I imagine, is just uh, starts out living on a planet perhaps, but then spreads out into uh, habitats in space. So it builds itself orbiting spacecraft and big orbiting objects, which just to give itself living space, where it can grow plants and use the starlight in order to run its activities. So gradually it will fill up the area around the star with more and more of these objects until in the end it surrounds the star completely. You've also talked about the greening of the galaxy and uh, Dyson trees. Well, my uh, notion is that uh, the galaxy is very boring as long as it's dead. I mean, if you look at all these planets and stars we've discovered, they're beautiful, but still they're sort of boring. They all are, are, are just totally desert. 
and how what bigger contrast from our planet, which is teeming with butterflies and birds. Mm. So I'd like to bring life to the universe and bring the universe to life. And I think yeah. that, that that's what I call the greening of the galaxy, just sort of a metaphor for growing potatoes on Mars and doing all kinds of interesting th stuff with life. The little things like <laughs> the the comets which occupy the Kuiper belt out, out, out beyond Neptune, there are probably trillions of those objects with far more real estate than, mm. in, in, than all the planets put together. So when life spreads out, that's where, it'll, that's where it'll have to go. So for that purpose, trees would be very helpful because in low gravity, these are, these are objects with very low gravity. So there's no limit on the height of a tree. Trees could grow to be hundreds of miles yeah. high and, and the, the gravity is so weak they, 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 they could just spread out in all directions to collect much more sunlight. The way uh, I, I talk about the, the domestication of biotechnology as being the next big thing. So every house will have a genome writing kit. So we can write the genomes for our dogs and cats or for our roses and orchids. And, and we can write then write genomes for potatoes to grow on Mars. And, and, and so I think this is coming pretty soon. Growing potatoes on Mars seems just the right place to pause this tribute to Freeman Dyson. It is not the end or an end. It is open-ended, just like Dyson, a vision and a prescription for humanity. The first kind that Dyson's legacy, in part, sparkles with radically diverse things named after him. Dyson Transform, a technique in number theory. Dyson Tree, a genetically engineered plant imagined to grow on a comet. Dyson Sphere, a shell-like megastructure surrounding a star and capturing its energy constructed by a super-advanced alien civilization. Dyson's eternal intelligence, immortal mental beings of diffuse particles adapting to the heat death of the universe. Dyson's legacy in full provides new ways to think. As Nobel laureate Steven Weinberg said, I have the sense that when consensus is forming like ice hardening on a lake, Dyson will do his best to chip at the ice. In part two of Closer to Truth's tribute to Freeman Dyson, he reflects on possible existence beyond the physical world and possible realities inaccessible to science. Do not expect the ordinary to be closer to truth. To watch complete conversations with over 100 of the world's leading thinkers on cosmos, consciousness, and meaning, visit our website, closertotruth.com.